We've often referenced the cross-disciplinary nature of the quantum computing field. Nowhere is that clearer than in the stories of three of our guests, each of whom are professors at esteemed universities and each of whom are propelling the field forward, each of whom in their own ways are turning the field into an industry. Margaret Martinosi, the head of the Directorate for Computer and Information Science and Engineering at the National Science Foundation and a professor of computer science at Princeton University, Tina Brower-Thomas, Principal Investigator for Integrated Quantum Materials and Director for the Integration for the NSF at Howard University, and Ken Brown, Professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Duke University. These three leaders talked us through the funding environment for quantum breakthroughs, the efforts to develop a more inclusive workforce, and the opportunity to build the very first practical, scalable, large-scale quantum computer through one of the leading approaches for creating qubits, trapped ions charged atomic particles suspended in space, floating in a vacuum in which qubits can be stored. In the case of both Tina and Ken, they entered the field unexpectedly, almost stumbling into their quantum futures while traveling other paths. Here's Tina Brower-Thomas. I had my first research experience in uh, materials chemistry, uh, working in polymer synthesis. And I took some graduate level courses and the, uh, the professor encouraged me to apply to uh, for a PhD program. And at the time I was really into polymer chemistry and I wanted to go to New York because I had also gotten into the Albanelli School of Dance and I was trying to figure out how I could do both. So I ended up at NYU uh, Tandon School of Engineering, majoring in um, materials chemistry. And um, I started to understand a little bit more about sort of the harsh chemicals and the process and the effects of on the environment of processing polymers. Although the idea of uh, processing uh, the backbone uh, carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and how the processing of those materials could give you totally different properties was exciting. I didn't actually like the idea of what it could, how that could affect the environment. So I was seeking some other avenues of research and I got into molecular, molecular electronics. And at the time, people weren't really calling it uh, quantum um, mechanics, but it was quantum mechanics. And here's Ken Brown. So at the end of university, I was really interested in how quantum mechanics makes molecules and chemicals and everything function. And I decided to go to um, University of California, Berkeley to work with Martin Headgordon on quantum chemistry with a classical computer. But then UC Berkeley chemistry department had a terrible rule, which is you couldn't just work for the person you wanted to work for. You had to go meet with other people. And I went to meet with Birgitta Whaley. And at the time, her postdoc, Daniel Ladar, uh, had a small group working on quantum computing of Julia Kempe and Dave Bacon. And when they explained to me how a quantum computer could maybe actually solve these quantum chemistry problems, I was hooked. And I decided to do my PhD with Brigida. Given how early we still are in the story of the quantum ecosystem, it isn't surprising that academia is where so many quantum careers begin. But as Tina says, that doesn't always feel like the right first option when embarking on a career. And then I did a postdoc and couldn't really agreed with myself that I wanted to go in academia at the time. So I went into consulting, but eventually realized that um, that I really liked academia. So I 
came, reached out to Howard University. I got involved with the a nanotechnology center at Howard that was funded by uh, the Nanotechnology Infrastructure Network. And my boss was actually invited to be uh, a principal investigator for the Center of Integrated Quantum Material. And I came on as a researcher and the co-director of education for the center. Carving out a career in this space seems to require an ability to remain not only curious, but adaptable. And Margaret Martinosi, a professor like Tina and Ken, but also, as mentioned at the top of the show, the leader of the Science Directorate at the National Science Foundation, explained to us that the nature of starting down one specific path before opening up to other possibilities as a field matures is in fact the basis for a strong funding thesis too. So I think one thing is that um, when you're making um, sort of initial investments in a field, uh, relatively modest investments within a single topic, within a single discipline, um, can be deeply impactful. Uh, and then as a field matures, it's often helpful to create more convergent uh, and interdisciplinary investments across different topic areas to bring uh, something together at scale and to test things in, in broader ways. And so I think what you see uh, in NSF's investments, especially over the last year in the Quantum Leap Challenge Institutes, um, is an example of trying to show things uh, in a broader and more interdisciplinary and at scale way. And I think you also see through NSF's investments in things like um, the QCIS Faculty Fellows Program, which is um, a- an effort to bring computer scientists into quantum information science in greater numbers. Uh, These are investments that are intended to promote and cultivate interdisciplinary interactions that will help the field advance and move from sort of topical specificity to something that's broader. Margaret's point about NSF's funding serving as an example of trying to show things in a broader and more interdisciplinary way and at scale, this is exactly the sort of thing I was most excited to hear with regard to funding because the folks that comprise this ecosystem do not always have linear career paths. They are themselves practitioners of interdisciplinary work. I mean, Tina could have been a full-time dancer, and Ken could have never gone to Berkeley. But something compelled them, compelled all three of our guests, in fact, to stay in the realm of quantum information science and to bring their expertise to the academy, where they can make massive change from within. Universities are, after all, centers of connection, employment, and financing for so many of the most daring ideas. And the history of quantum computing would be incomplete without recognizing their contribution. I'm Matt Hooper, and this is Forwards and Backwards, a history of quantum computing. In 2015, I went by myself one evening to see the film Tomorrowland, starring George Clooney and based on the Disney attraction of the same name. I don't remember much about it. I, I, don't, I don't even know if it was any good. But when the lights came up in the theater and the end credits rolled, I found myself crying. I know. I was surprised, too. Uh, the optimism, the retrofuturism that sort of decorated the whole film, it, it reminded me that the future was not always rendered a dystopia. That back in the middle of the 20th century, the Jetsons were as likely a glimpse of tomorrow as Mad Max Fury Road. Maybe I was waxing a little too nostalgic. I mean, I'd only ever learned about the space race, for example, that period of extreme future-focused and sort of uniquely American optimism in school. Much as we discussed the nuclear arms race during the Cold War in Episode 1, 
The space race was a parallel US-USSR competition that doubled as a way of recruiting bright young minds for careers in science and technology. The magic of President Eisenhower was a rallying force to an undecided conference, and to give added impetus to its purpose, word was received of the successful launching of the Atlas Intercontinental Missile, an answer in part at least to Russia's space supremacy. In the rocket's fiery wake was America's sober realization that the battle had just been joined and that the work of self-preservation was at hand in 1958, the dawn of the space age. And early on in the process of producing this series, I spoke with Sebastian Hassinger, who leads academic partnerships for IBM Quantum, and Abraham Asfaw, the global lead of quantum education and open science at IBM Quantum. You know them by now. You, you hear their voices in each episode and conversation with every guest about how the future of the quantum workforce might just be the next space race, in a sense, the next generational call to action. And and I'll also point out that um, NSF and other government and public-private partnerships around notions of quantum curricula, and, and, and I mean that in the broadest space from K-12 uh, through undergrad, through grad, those investments in quantum curricula are another form of sort of fostering collaboration, fostering a new generation of workforce in these important areas. People who come in um, being naturally intrigued by it, because getting intrigued and curious is kind of step one for all scientists. And then also coming in, understanding what are the skill sets that they're going to need to develop to really play a strong role in it. The workforce development efforts around NSF funding, around quantum information science are, are uh, incredibly exciting, uh, not just as a as a sign of the maturation of the of the field um, and the the increasing demand for those skills in the marketplace, but also um, because of the opportunity uh, with such a, a field, you know, such an early stage of the, of the development of the field to make an impact in terms of uh, diversity and representation. What do you think the the industry, you know, the industry as a whole and academia as a whole? as well as the public sector need to do to try to make the composition of the field more representative of, of what our, our broader society looks like? Uh, so I think keeping the doors open is a huge part of that. Um, I give big kudos to IBM and other industry players who by putting resources online and by creating educational resources that are extremely open have basically broadened who has access to these technologies and to learning about these technologies to a huge degree. And I think that's part of it. So keeping the doors open, I mean that both sort of from a logistical standpoint and also from an identity standpoint. I think if you look at the early days of, of my field of computer science, uh, it was an extremely open um, field because it was so new that people came from in from kind of all different directions and felt that if they were interested in computing, they had a place there. Uh, as we matured, we went through a phase where unfortunately people started to believe that they couldn't declare themselves a CS major unless they had been playing with computers from say age five onwards. And we didn't intentionally close the doors, but that perception ended up closing the doors. And I think we have an opportunity with quantum with quantum computing um, to say, this is something new. The doors are wide open right now and let's keep those doors open. Let's bring in uh, a broad set of viewpoints, a broad set of technical backgrounds and a broad set of um, people, demographics 
in order to uh, sort of have our field and the ideas in our field be as rich and as vibrant and as diverse as society is. But we all know that too few of our institutions genuinely reflect a wide array of talent from a host of diverse backgrounds. And as the quantum workforce expands, will this be an opportunity to change? The let's achieve the American dream style of propaganda never really fades, but can it be repurposed to actually reflect America? I mean, in that clip you heard earlier from 1958, if you'd guessed that the folks in the footage itself were all white and all male, well, you'd be right. In fact, the work of pioneering figures like Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn, which have only recently been recognized, remained unacknowledged and uncelebrated. Can things be different this time? More inclusive? And if so, what are some of the ways the workforce can be designed as the biggest possible tent, as a field where all who are curious are welcome? Tina Brower-Thomas spoke to some of the challenges that come with opening doors wider, namely because of folks who feel, incorrectly, that the addition of new voices and perspectives to a given field would take away from their success, an issue with a long, ugly history here in the United States, seen in so many different fields. I think most, well, I shouldn't say most, but I think there are enough people in the world who have a hard time saying, if I give this person an opportunity, that it's going to take food off of my table. They have a hard time getting beyond that. Right. And so part of the reason why right. people are, you know, put into silos is because I, I think the people who are in charge, they feel that makes them feel like they can control the situation, control resources, control knowledge, and therefore, you know, keep status quo. But we ought to see by now, especially, you know, given this political climate, that keeping status quo, it's just, it doesn't work. And it actually works to our detriment. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we have to change. And so um, what it means to have the American dream in terms of quantum, if you open the door for someone who who's, who's not traditionally had mm -hmm. access, what that really means is you're opening the door for their children to have a better education, um, have broader experiences, and be prepared to contribute in the future. If you keep the door closed, then there th that synergy that you were talking about doesn't happen. It actually works against us. Sebastian, whose role is in no small part to grow the quantum ecosystem, asked Tina about a variety of models for supporting a more inclusive workforce. You know, there's HBCUs and there's funding efforts within um, standalone institutions that are, are serving those communities. And then there's, you know, back to what you said at the beginning, that, that it, it should, this shouldn't be a question. There's sort of the, the imperative of just like everything we do should have an aspect of representation and diversity sort of embedded in it. But that runs the risk of it going with without enough focus on it right if it, if we just say well of course we have we have to do diversity and representation and everybody's responsible for it then maybe that's the same thing as saying nobody's responsible for it right and i'm just curious what your views are on on what the if there are best practices or best approaches that you've seen investment is important and i guess that's why i keep i, I, I good to go back to that because you can have people at the table 
like you said, initially. But if there's not investment in infrastructure to keep that pathway open for what comes next, then that's that's what the pro- that's where the problem will be. So that's why I'm all you know when I have an opportunity, I say, give me a blank check, <laughs> I'll take it, <laughs> and and develop your workforce, right? The longer we continued to interview folks for this series, the more we realized that no conversation would be complete without a reference to the Physics of Computation conference at MIT's Endicott House. But when you look back at the famous photograph of that wildly exciting and pioneering day back in 1981, it shows an alarming racial and gender imbalance. We're, you know, obviously we're talking about the history of quantum computing and that photograph from the conference at Endicott House is is iconic. And it is, um, I think there's one woman, but everybody else is, everybody's male and, and it's definitely all white. I mean, do you feel like we're at a stage in quantum computing where um, where we can address that 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 inequity that that uh, imbalance um, that's that's been so inherent in the sciences and in technology and in business in this country. Well, um, obviously, that's a very hard question to answer because there's been lots. Right? There's, yeah, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I think what I was saying was obviously aspirational, right? Where that question would not have to be asked because, you know, um, we all contribute to the society. We all pay taxes. We all, you know, should have equal resources for education and health and, um, and housing and so forth. Right. So, um, so it's obviously aspirational because we know that that's not the case. Um, but certainly, I think what does help is a sincerity of the mm. of the idea that we all have a contribution to make. Given how non-intuitive this work is and how necessary it is to include as many talented folks from as many varied backgrounds as possible, is there an ideal way to point to especially for young people considering a technical career, point down a particular road and say, hey, this is your quantum path. (laughs) The question is, how do you get there, right? That's what you're asking. And I wish I could tell you I have the answer. There is not one answer to that. Um, I think, number one, though, one thing that has to be considered is... If you don't see someone that looks like you doing doing the work, then you probably, I think, may not think it's for you. So we have to change the right. narrative right. that right. science or quantum or math is for certain people and not for other people. So that's the first thing. You know, we can't, we have to get away from these silos of, who is supposed to do right. this and who is supposed to do the other thing? I mean, when I went for my PhD, I, I had uh, colleagues, my first class, ask me why I was not in a, in a music video. <laughs> Literally asked me that. And it was so hard for me to, to really wrap my mind around that because obviously I loved, I had been trained uh, in classical uh, dance and modern dance for years. 
And I went back and forth about, do I, do I, as an African-American woman, do I need, you know, do we need another dancer or singer or do we need someone who's doing this other thing? Cause I was getting that message, um, from, you know, from my, uh, my network that, you know, Hey, yeah, go, you should really do this science. You're really good at it. We need more people that look like you involved in science. Without seeing yourself represented in a field, the prospect of building your career in that field can feel insurmountable. And with the NSF-funded Center for Quantum Networks, a national hub where Tina is the diversity and inclusion co-director, and which is a public-private partnership involving not only the academy, but a network of labs and major businesses, and is, in their own words, advancing the development of the quantum internet and road mapping its anticipated applications and societal impacts, There is a major opportunity to build the inclusive workforce that didn't exist the last time America was recruiting bright young minds for careers in science and technology. Back in the mid-century, when scientists and engineers of color were excluded from the narrative, to build a workforce that doesn't look like that photo taken at the Physics of Computation conference at Endicott House. Working to ensure a fairer, more inclusive quantum workforce is As we know, also a major part of how Margaret Martinosi gauges the projects she helps to support via the NSF. And during our conversation with Margaret, Sebastian asked a question that's lingered with me for a while. It's about where the near-term versus long-term possibilities of quantum are. About how, in spite of the major advances made in computation, see our focus on Shor's algorithm in episode 2, for example, that isn't actually where these machines might be most valuable in the near-term. Because in the near-term, the machines that are being built today aren't so useful in practical terms for computation, but may uh, be extremely useful for simulation, for uh, for other um, uh, almost as a lab instrument in in um, in physics and chemistry and other physical sciences. Yeah, and so the way NSF approaches QIS. Um, is across several directorates. Uh, so as you mentioned, math and physical sciences, MPS, and computer and information science and engineering, size are, are two of the directorates that um, play a strong role in quantum. A third directorate that plays a strong role in quantum is the engineering directorate. Mm. Um, and the, the other thing um, to note is that indeed, when NSF talks about QIS or quantum information science, uh, it's a broader view. Uh, it's quantum computing, yes, but it's also quantum communications, quantum sensing, and so forth. And and as you say, many of the first uses might be as lab instruments, as emulators, as uh, metrology, before they become useful in quantum computing. Um, that's actually a great example of the, you know, where there might be virtuous cycles for us mm-hmm. to explore. Um, I, I like to point out that. Uh, in 1950, we had a transistor. It was already invented at that point, but we weren't using them to build computers. We were using them to build radios in 1950. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the virtuous cycle aspects of the 50s for electronics was that companies were able to use transistors to build radios, to, to build communication systems, and that created um, a way for them to practice, to get better at the fabrication technologies um, while having enough income or enough promise of income mm. that they could sort of uh, hold out for the longer term benefits of it for computing, which didn't really reveal themselves until later. Right. Mm-hmm. And so 
Um, this understanding what are both short-term and long-term uses for a technology can be part of how you um, end up in the virtuous cycle that we're all sort of aiming for. If, as Margaret says, we can understand both the short-term and long-term uses for a technology, if we can safely wind up in a virtuous cycle, what specific benchmarks or inflection point might we anticipate to know when quantum has gone, if not mainstream, then gained a more general traction in the manner of other once esoteric technologies like AI? Well, I think um, demonstrating error-corrected qubits would be an important milestone. Um, the, the ability to um, maintain state in a way that lets you do longer and richer calculations is going to be important. Um, demonstrating problems at scale uh, will be important. Some of us have been working on uh, circuit cutting techniques that let you take a big quantum circuit and divide it into smaller quantum circuits that you run in a hybrid manner, uh, composing together hybrid sections with, with classical reconstruction to essentially sew these cut elements together. Um, that's one, that's not the only answer. It may not be the answer, um, but it's one example of people who are trying to look for uh, approaches that will let us scale. Mm. And I think seeing which of those start to show signs of victory um, will be important because the way that you compute on 50 or 60 qubits uh, is not the same way you're going to compute on 100 or 200. And um, demonstrating scale both in the computation itself and, and also in issues of, um, say, the frequency tuning uh, for the qubit control or crosstalk mitigation, there's, there's actually a bunch of different things that are hard to scale about quantum computing now, as you guys know, probably better than I do. And, and so um, we're going to need to pick off several of those. Margaret mentioned a quantum circuit there, which will come up again over the course of the episode. And to find out just what a quantum circuit is, this strikes me as a very good time to throw to our friend Abe Asfaw for an Abe-splainer. A quantum circuit is a description of operations that you're applying on qubits in a certain way that achieves superposition, entanglement, and interference, in the end achieving the computation that you're trying to do. Thank you, Abe. You, you gotta love the Abe-splainers, folks. I know I do. <clears throat> One of the things that both Tina and Margaret have been sharing in these conversations is the difficulty inherent in creating a space for folks to find their footing in QC, or quantum computing, which is such a non-intuitive field, particularly folks with developer backgrounds who have a more traditional classical background as opposed to a physics background. Here's Abe asking that very question. What do you think we could be doing to attract more classical developers into the field. Uh, the field seems to be heavily skewed for physicists and quantum experimentalists who've been trained to do this for several years. How do we retrain an existing classical developer workforce to be thinking quantum? Um, I think I think we're getting there. So uh, for example, I mentioned the QCIS Faculty Fellows um, program before. That's one place where NSF is trying to invest. It's three years of bridge funding that a department, a CS department receives in order to be able to hire a faculty member uh, with CS expertise uh, and they want to bring it to bear on a quantum topic. So this could be 
a programming languages researcher who wants to think about how to um, create uh, programming languages for quantum. It could be an algorithmicist who wants to think about new quantum algorithms. It could be an architect, right? So one angle on this is QCIS faculty fellows, both because it lets departments hire those people directly, and also because by planting those people in CS departments, you're creating little footholds where then there'd be uh, quantum relevant curricula springing up. And so many more undergrads would be exposed to quantum in those departments as well. Hmm. Uh, so that's a part of it. Um, I think we're also seeing um, places in companies where they're recognizing, uh, I think dual use would be a strong statement, but they're recognizing synergies between technologies um, from the quantum side of things and the classical. So for example, um, many quantum technologies have at least a part of the system where there'll be some use of cryogenic logic. So logic that's happening at very cold temperatures. Uh, and there's uh, alongside of that uh, interest in understanding um, how those kinds of cryogenic logic techniques can be useful for advancing classical non-quantum computing as well. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of another form of synergy. Um, I, I think uh, one of the best ways to invite people into the field of quantum computing is to make platforms available for people to experiment with, experiment on, and understand what their role might be. And so, you know, the extraordinary resources that IBM and others have made available um, is one great example of that. Uh, About eight months ago, NSF um, issued a Dear Colleague letter, a DCL, um, offering supplemental funding to researchers who wanted uh, to train a student to become better at using one of these platforms. And so the idea of this platforms DCL uh, was to make sure that our research community was well engaged with the platforms and prototypes that are available mm-hmm. uh, from IBM, from Microsoft, from Amazon Web Services, and so forth, in order to uh, make sure students were gaining that kind of experience. Um, and we're looking forward to, to um, sort of seeing about doing that again, hopefully in the future, just as a way of continuing to cultivate these opportunities for people to dig in and, and see things um, in a hands-on way that can really capture the interest of a broader community. Making sure to, quote, capture the interest of a broader community is indeed a significant goal in the evolution of quantum computing. The more hungry minds eager to build, the more interdisciplinary this can become, the faster we will be able to see those near-term practical use cases come to fruition. And then efforts like STAQ, S-T-A-Q, led uh, by Ken Brown out of Duke, are examples of really maybe starting at that level and going down to consider how to build practical prototypes in academic settings. And it's this interplay of sort of large-scale interdisciplinary efforts in academia alongside obviously huge contributions and um, uh, prototype deployments in industry that's really moving the field along in, in important ways and efficiently. The interplay between industry and the academy has recurred again and again in this series. And we heard from Ken Brown, who Margaret mentions there earlier in our episode. Ken started his quantum journey back in the late 90s, so just a few years since Peter Shore developed his quantum algorithm for factoring and, after a start in theory, discovered that it was in the realm of experimentation where he'd be more comfortable, starting with experiments in nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR. I started in 1998, 
been a few years since Shor's algorithm. People were very excited. Nobody had any idea on how to build them. And so my PhD was mostly looking at theoretically at all kinds of possible ways one could try to build a quantum computer. And when I finished, I just really felt like the theory was so far ahead of experiments that, um, that I don't know, I felt like I should try to help with the experiments, which is pure hubris. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew um, Isaac Chuang. I met him when he was at IBM Almaden. Uh, we actually, the whole lab went on a little field trip one day from Berkeley down to Almaden. Uh, and so I emailed Ike and I asked if he'd be interested in maybe having me do some NMR experiments, which is what he was doing, mm-hmm. um, as a way to to switch to experiments. And Ike kindly invited me out, gave me an interview. Um, during the interview, I was incredibly lucky and I solved one theory problem for one of his students, which I think made him think, okay, it's worth the risk. This guy at least could do something. <laughs> uh, but then NMR was like a great, is actually a great system for a theorists to get started at the time because an NMR device because of its functionality in medicine and biology had a great control system. And so basically I just took the codes that I used to type to run on my classical computer and instead I would just send pulses to the NMR device. Let's talk a little bit about how NMR NMR works. So, you know, you have all of the nucleuses in any molecule often have a magnetic spin. And hydrogen, which is very abundant in organic molecules, has a magnetic spin of one half. And the very nice thing about it is that um, the frequency of which that basically qubit spins depends on the chemical environment it sees. So the earliest NMR experiments, you just basically measure, okay, there are protons there spinning. And then Uh, As they got more sophisticated and had better precision, you could actually say, oh, that's a proton connected to this part of a molecule or this kind of molecule. And then as the molecules became more um, complicated, uh, you had the problem that maybe there there are pieces of molecules which are near each other that you want to figure out like, oh, this, this part is next to this part, this part is next to that part. And then what you take advantage of is the fact that these little magnetic dipoles actually interact with each other. And so, so, so the, the chemist and biochemist um, had already started to build tools which would basically uh, do a sequence of dynamic decoupling operations. I mean, they had dynamic decoupling operations which would allow you to decouple these different spins. Hmm. But they were also building tools which would allow you to map the state of one spin to another spin. And because that the quality of that mapping depended on their relative location and the strength of their interaction in this molecule, you could actually make these 2D NMR spectra, which would allow you to um, construct the 3D, yeah, whatever, a 3D picture of the molecule. Mm. When quantum computing came about, people who were working in NMR and had thought about these kind of interactions immediately saw how to map basically quantum circuits onto these machines. The challenge was that there is no, for room temperature NMR, where most of these experiments take place, uh, the amount of the initialization was really hard. In fact, you're just looking at a tiny, like the this tiny bit of thermal bias at room temperature, which is just tiny. And so people came up with different schemes, which would make it look effectively like it was a pure state uh, moving. But it was really hard to see how to scale that up to many, many 
uh, nuclear spins. Too many qubits. This tinkering, this experimenting with Isaac Chuang led eventually to a decision to shift away from NMR technology as a method for designing and eventually building quantum computers towards ion trapping. Landing at Ike's lab just in time for this evolution was significant in Ken's career. He'd started out under Brigitte Whaley at Berkeley, and who, as it so happens, was colleagues with Umesh Vazirani, who you might remember as a major influence on Peter Shore from back in episode two, and Ken soon found that NMR, a major 20th century technology, provided a blueprint to control trapped ion systems. Also, for some context here, a quantum gate is a logical operation on a qubit that, in combination, create quantum circuits, or programs. And you'll recall what a circuit is from our earlier Abe Splainer. So then, in Ike's lab, you're doing this work with NMR. Uh, um, initialization is, is increasingly sort of challenging. And there's a moment at which... Ike really takes the decision to shift to trapped ions, right? You were mentioning that, um, that he sort of, uh, you know, in, in many ways sort of abruptly changed direction and abandoned NMRs uh, because of the limitations with, with it going forward. Yeah, that's right. I, it really was, um, I don't, it still really strikes me as pretty fearless. So there was some really great ion trapping work um, going around, our, you know, at NIST, of course, Chris Monroe's group, Reiner Blatt's group, and, and many others. We had a special connection with uh, Urabe, uh, Professor Urabe at uh, Osaka University. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but basically what's great and remains great about trapped ions is that initialization, preparation, is really quite good due to optical pumping. And that solved that problem. This uh, development of these molmer sorensen phase geometric gates to make an XX-type interaction between the ions uh, has led to really high quality two qubit gates. And already at that time, they were pretty good. Mm. And, and then in some sense, the control, even though you're sending in lasers, you're doing RF modulation in the kind of the few hundred megahertz range, which is basically the same as NMR. And right. so, so Ike said, basically Ike came to lab one day and was like, I think we should do ion traps. What do you think? And I said, sure, why not? Ken's work with trapped ions is a major step on the road towards building a practical, scalable quantum computer. Where the work at MIT differs from the work of major industry players, this difference in the academy, especially, is in the trapped ion approach. See, superconducting qubits, favored by many industry leaders, and unlike trapped ion qubits, are manufactured. And so the error rate is high, and there's extreme unreliability involved for any eager developer. Trapped ion qubits, as they are made from atomic ions, are not manufactured, naturally. And in the creation of trapped ion qubits, the atoms have each had an electron removed. And with the help of lasers, they can become entangled. They can achieve that both-and state we've discussed before. And quantum information is then able to be encoded, quote, not just onto the qubits themselves, but also into their entangled correlations. The back half of that sentence was a direct quote from The Quest for the Golden Ring, an article available at stories.duke.edu slash earth-2-quantum. I quote from this Duke University website directly for two reasons. One, because the DQC, or Duke Quantum Center, is, like the Center for Quantum Networks, a hub for developing the next great scientific workforce, the quantum workforce, and they're very much worth highlighting here. And two, because the DQC is in and of itself an innovation on the part of one of the most prestigious universities in the world. 
a major investment on the part of the Academy. Now, you might remember in episode two when Ken Brown referred to the funding climate for his chosen field. I would call that the first quantum winner. In the early 2000s, in the sort of valley between Shor's algorithm and the rapid developments of the 2010s. I asked Sebastian about this in the wake of our discussion with Ken, about funding cycles, particularly in the quest to represent qubits in the superconductor versus trapped ion debate. I think, um, you know, there was a tremendous amount of excitement in the academic research community. Um, there was a just a huge amount of, of activity around uh, trying to find other ways to instantiate qubits because because of the limitations of NM, NMR. So trapped ion comes about um, uh, some sometime in the late 90s. Um, and actually, um, Ken Brown, who we interviewed, uh, was involved in sort of early um, early versions of, of trapped ions. Um, and then superconducting qubits also come about. So there's there's very quickly a bunch of different models uh, for for building qubits, but at the same time, um, you know, academic researchers get really excited when they are um, they're on the on the pre, on a, on the beginning of a path that's going to lead to an incredible breakthrough in ten to fifteen years. <laughs> Right. right. Um, uh, government funding and private sector funding tends to have a shorter horizon than that generally, especially in these days. The story of real advances in this field can sometimes get lost in the machinations of funding, of sector. It's worth remembering just how tectonic a shift Shore's algorithm actually was, what it meant to be able to break public key cryptography. Shor's algorithm put forward the idea that if encrypted information once thought unbreakable was, well, broken, then the way we interact over the internet, our every message sent, our every item purchased, would be insecure, vulnerable. And code breaking is a heck of a way to draw attention and financing from governments and private companies alike. Research begun over 20 years ago Many projects initially financed at the turn of the century, they're still paying off. We're still experiencing the fruits of so much labor. I mean, think about what our guests have been saying during the course of this episode, the stories they've been sharing. There are so many causal relationships at play here. Peter Shore's work enabled Ken Brown's work. Margaret Martinosi's work enables Tina Brower Thomas's work and so on until the next generation, until an ascendant quantum workforce has scaled. I was thinking, actually, that one of the loveliest things about the work of our three guests is that they each encourage collaboration between institutions, between sectors, while remaining laser-focused on the broader mission. The achievements of their predecessors and colleagues are not forgotten. They are, in fact, built upon. The quantum ecosystem, from the very beginning, as we have learned time and again on this show, is driven by this shared mission to outperform what we all previously thought possible on even the most sophisticated classical computer. Implicit in so many use cases, breaking encryption, discovering new medicine, breakthroughs in AI, is speed, speed, speed. The ability to compute faster than literally we are even able to imagine. <laughs> the race is on to build stable, practical quantum computers, and the learnings are being shared widely through papers and lectures, and frankly, they have to be. The problems are too difficult and take far too long for this work to be done in silos. Something else happened in the academy during the so-called quantum winter, the mid-2000s. 
The publishing of a paper entitled Quantum Information Cannot Be Completely Hidden in Correlations, Implications for the Black Hole Information Paradox by Samuel L. Bronstein, a professor at the University of York, and Arun K. Patti, a visiting scientist at the Institute of Physics, Bhubaneswar, at the time of publication. Essentially, this paper said that even if information is lost on account of decoherence, it's never really lost. That according to what they named the no-hiding theorem, even if information is lost from one system, it still exists in the rest of the universe. Information lingers, it, it remains. This appears to be the nature of the universe. And as I read up on this, I started to think that there was a nice metaphor here. Yes, there's something extremely cool and very sort of moving about proving that no information is lost in a quantum sense. But it reminded me of the way in which successive generations of quantum leaders pass along their wisdom, keep track of progress so that someone else can take the baton and carry it forward, ensuring that information is never lost, always remains, and can guide the field forward. So, as we think about the near-term quantum workforce, the inheritors of such a rich legacy already, well, who are they? So, for for one thing, it's important if you're thinking about, uh, you know, quantum literacy or, or who what who are the people, what are the skills we're going to need to take advantage of this new technology? There's really, there's one segmentation that I keep coming back to that I think is really important. Um, you know, in the developer community, um, you're talking about enterprise developers, you're talking about uh, product developers, you're talking about anybody who's who's going to be writing code that's going to use quantum computers, um, you know, th th that's going to look more like mainstream development skills down the road, right? It doesn't yet, but there aren't, there aren't practical applications for this technology yet. It's not there yet. But, you know, we, we expect in the near term, um, as those, those use cases emerge, as the practical applications emerge, uh, we will also as an industry be climbing up the abstraction stack, much the way that um, data science, machine learning, deep learning created easier and easier to use. You know, I mean, in the early days of, of machine learning, you had to be a PhD in, in statistics and mathematics um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, build your own models from scratch, basically, um, in order to be useful to figuring out how to use this stuff. And now, you know, there's there's uh, machine learning libraries in in iOS, in Android, and this is this is a very familiar uh, pattern from information technology in general. I mean, you know, uh, with personal computers, um, the Heathkit era, you had to like build it by hand and then set the registers by hand, like with toggle switches and stuff. And then you could do computations. And now, you know, I mean, if you put one of those on a table in front of a, a bunch of kids who are learning how to code in Python, they wouldn't know that it was a computer, right? I mean, it's that same kind of, of evolutions going on. So there's, there's a distinction between um, developer skills needed to use quantum computing in applications versus when I think of a quantum workforce, I think of um, you. You mentioned the the um, the uh, you know mission to the moon um, uh, in but uh, just before, and I, I think in similar terms, right? I mean, the Apollo um, uh, program was the product of something like four hundred thousand people's 
labor for seven or eight years, right? Before, before something got off the ground. And, and that's, we're in that kind of situation right now. There's, there's years and years and years and years and years of labor from very highly um, trained, specialized, focused, technical individuals, scientific minds, right? Um, as we scale this out, as we develop it, we're going to have to continue to do that. There's an enormous demand for PhDs um, and for researchers, but we're also going to have to um, build the force of systems engineers, um, test engineers, uh, um, the, the, the developers who have beyond, who, who have more than just the skills to use quantum computing, but actually the skills to build those tools to enable others to use quantum computing, right? And then all of the creativity um, that goes into trying to figure out, okay, so how does this apply to uh, drug discovery? How does this apply to chemicals, uh, computational chemistry, chemistry simulations? How does this apply to a particular um, vertical? And that's where, that's where I think we can learn the most from, from the mistakes of the past. Um, we need as many diverse viewpoints and, and modes of create creative thought as possible to try to get a grip on, on what we can do with this stuff and what's the best stuff that we can do with this stuff, right? Like, well, let's not just use the, use it for the first thing that occurs to us, especially if we are a small group of, uh, white men, <laughs> right? Um, that's, uh, the history of a lot of the history of information technology. You can trace a lot of the problems back to the, the lack of diversity in design and in, um, thinking through these, you know, these, these, uh, applications like, uh, you know, the, the biases in, in AI models, for example, are, are very obviously gendered and racial based, right? I mean, there's, the, you know, we have the the luxury of hitting a reset button to a certain degree. This is a new field. It's made up of a bunch of other fields, all of which are um, not that diverse, uh, you know, in STEM in general. Um, but at least, you know, with this this new um, this new arena, we can be more mindful about making sure the opportunities to to join in and to participate and to contribute are more accessible to more people all around the world. Sebastian's thoughtful response, with an eye on the future and an awareness of the past, both the history of the quantum field and, yeah, the, the space race too, though thankfully he didn't also reference uh, the, the movie Tomorrowland, <laughs> is a reminder that in terms of support, interest, funding, the peaks and valleys recur. That information, wisdom, is never lost that there are different moments in, in the cycle where there are major breakthroughs and, and also where there are small, careful, incremental steps forward on, on route to making quantum computers real, making quantum computers accessible, making quantum computers useful. I wondered where in this cycle we were now. So I asked. We've been hearing different, um, we got into it a little bit, right? Which is, okay, this was a sort of uh, quantum desert. This was the quantum lush valley, different, usually vis-a-vis -vis, um, funding climates. But in terms of also just cultural importance and the way that new talent can think about an industry, would you say that we are in a quantum desert? Um, I, I think uh, it will be interesting to see whether the excited people coming in now 
are um, going to stick around for a while or right. so sometimes excitement means pulling in people who are thinking on different time scales than maybe where the success will actually come. Mm. Um, but, but to me, this is a, a, a great peak moment in many ways. Um, the demonstrations of the past two, three, four years are extraordinary. Um, what fun it has been to sort of be around for this and to watch it unfold. It's been extraordinary. Uh, so is it done yet? No, but, um, I, I don't know. So maybe peak isn't the right word for it. I, I have climbed enough mountains. I'm enough of a hiker that I know about the notion that you, you get to what you think is the summit and then you realize, Oh, there's a little call. And then we go up some more. Right. 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 So we may not be at the peak peak, but there's a pretty darn good view and it's been a great hike. And now yeah, we'll keep going up. <laughs> The story we're telling marks the largest scale coming together of disparate disciplines in the history of computing. Physicists, electrical engineers, computer scientists, and chemists. In future episodes, we'll meet folks who represent industry, folks who present near-term practical use cases for quantum computers, and also a founding father of quantum information science. But it is important that we recognize here, now, in this episode, the extraordinary contribution of the Academy, where so much took root, and where leaders like Tina Brower-Thomas, Margaret Martinosi, and Ken Brown are still showing us the way forward. That's our show, folks. I would like to thank our guests, Tina Brower-Thomas, Ken Brown, and Margaret Martinosi, co-creators Sebastian Hassinger and Abraham Asfaw, the whole IBM Quantum team for their support and cooperation, and of course you, our listeners. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>